I'll give it to you, Gandalf. No! Meaning to be kind, I will become as terrible as the Dark Lord himself. Do not tempt me! Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us is a very special guest. Uh, you know him as the creator of AndersonVision.com. Uh, you know him from reviewing porn on uh, XCritic.com. Troy Anderson. What's up? Mr. Anderson. That's right. We're very happy to have Troy Anderson on to talk about probably one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting director we've covered on this show, Ralph Bakshi. Couldn't agree more. Um, I always, I was always a big fan of you know several of his films, but it wasn't until I really dove into his filmography and his sort of history and everything that I realized that he's just like a totally fascinating man. And so I'm really happy we're doing this episode. I'm really happy you're here to join us, Troy. Thanks. I yes. believe this was your idea, right? Or well, did I ask? Well, you brought it to me, and I brought up I brought a couple names, and you just jumped at Bakshi. Okay, yeah. This is a few months ago. That's right, yeah. I'm so glad you did, Patrick, because uh, I, I kind of want to go on record and say, as much as I love all the directors that we've covered, this guy is kind of a kind of a marvel in a way. He's like, he's like a, I, don't, I don't know what to say, because he... <sighs> Like, he's just fascinating and provocative and kind of like, uh, he's like the Andy Warhol of subversive, subversive animation. He needs to be more of a recognized name. I, I know his movies are kind of messy, but they're messy in a very interesting way, and I, I'm looking forward to diving more and, into it. And more importantly, with, the, with very few exceptions, they're messy in very watchable ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're consistently entertaining and just... If if just not on a visual level, it just you just you're you're endlessly interested in seeing what he decides to come up with from his crazy little brain. <laughs> well, he freestyles, and I can appreciate yeah. that because I mean, he, it's the antithesis of big studio production. Even though when he was getting big in the seventies, Disney was kind of on decline, but still, it was just nasty, but nasty for the sake of being nasty. Yeah, and. I mean, we'll get all we'll get to all this later uh, when we you know go in depth with him. But it's it he's totally just someone who carved out his own way, and that's something you know I always respect. Um, uh, Jim, do we have any business to take care of before um, we? Other than just a couple of bonus episodes, I think it's 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 really cool. I mean, despite being busier than ever, I managed to uh, take a couple hours out of my schedule to uh, uh, this past week. I recorded a bonus episode, which is now in the feed. Uh, recorded very quickly with uh, a former guest on the Christopher Nolan episode, Eric Childress of eFilmCritic.com, and uh, he's with the Chicago Film Critics Association. He uh, saw like 38 movies at the Toronto International Film Festival, and he took some time to talk to me about 12 of them that he saw. So um, we just talked for like a good 90 minutes on uh, those movies, and I encourage you to check out that uh, conversation we had. It was very cool. And uh, then next week I'm recording a special bonus episode with, uh, turns out, three very, very uh, awesome uh, guys that I've talked to in the past. Uh, uh, Zach of Film Jive, Kurt 
of the Row 3 Cinecast and Jay of Film Junk. We're all going to sort of discuss a little bit about documentary ethics in regards to the recent release of The Imposter. And we're going to touch a little bit briefly on Compliance, a very sort of controversial film in the way that it's been presented and a lot of people have been walking out of it and it's just it's it's one of those movies that you really want to talk about but obviously if you haven't seen it you'll want to stay clear of it cuz it's we're going to get spoilerific on that particular bonus episode as well. So um yeah, that's really cool that uh you know we can offer a little bit of extra content for this month and then next month I'm sure for Halloween season maybe. Right Patrick? Wink wink. You know? I don't know what you're talking about uh but yeah, we might do something. Yeah, we might. We might. And plus, you're you're going to a couple of uh, uh, music box yes. things. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned before that uh, every year the music box in Chicago uh, has a 24-hour horror film festival called the Music Box Massacre. Well, this year, the, the people running the massacre and the music box, I guess they had a like a they, – they split. Um, so now the music box has its own 24-hour horror film festival and the people who ran the music box massacre – uh, are now at the Portage Theater doing their own. So two weekends in a row, I'm going to spend 24 hours uh, watching horror movies. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, you should cover it somehow. I mean, I don't know if you... We tried doing that at one point with uh, the, the sci-fi spectacular they had, and all we really did was just get out a tape recorder and like briefly go through each film that we saw. I don't know how interesting that would be if you just did it all on your own. <laughs> But maybe you could just do like quick little write-ups on the films that you saw and post on the blog or something. Um, possibly. I mean, I think if my brain will be kind of. I think my brain will be kind of scrambled. I might run. I might do a sort of rapid-fire, uh, sort of lightning round um, on whatever the next uh, episode we do yeah. for what we watch that week. I might just do a lightning round where I quickly discuss all of them. But that's a great idea. I like that. Totally. Well, that should do it. Other than an updated calendar in the sidebar, it's pretty much all the way uh, up until next August, I think, of next yeah. year. So, I mean, we got next year look is looking amazing to me. I can't wait. So, people mm-hmm. should check out the updated calendar on the website as well over at directorsclubpodcast.com. So, I think we're ready yep. to move on. All right, let's talk about what we watched this week. Sweet. I watched Larry Crowns. Independence Day Requiem for a dream I spit on your grave Crank in the perfect storm Plan 9 from outer space What we watch this week On Netflix and Blu-ray I think I might watch First, or maybe there will be blood. I think the uh, Troy, the guest, goes first. I think. Okay. <laughs> I'm actually trying to make a list of what I've watched. I've had to go through so many things this week. Uh, Batman: The Dark Knight Returns Part One that's coming to video. I don't know if that falls into your spoiler territory. No, no, no. It's, I mean, you, it, number one. Well, how how closely does it hew the graphic novel? Because the graphic novel has certainly been around for a very long time. So, pretty close. It's the basic, the first two issues with a whole lot of padding. I see. Yeah. Uh, did you did you get a chance to watch it? Yeah. 
How how okay? Number one, what's the style of it? Is it following the art style? Of- it's creepy how well they translate Miller's line work to animation. It looks like he just said, you know what? Oh, I hate the government. I hate everybody. I'm going to animate my own thing. I mean, it looks like the book in motion. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't. But is the I mean, it's not like a motion comic. It's not. It's actually no, like no, no, no. stuff. I think they learned their lesson after that Watchmen release. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. very embarrassing. Um, yeah. so does it gain anything by being, or is it just like watching a graphic novel? Like, does it does it gain anything from being made into a film? The pacing seems a little better, but the whole time you're listening to it, because Peter Weller is doing old Bruce Wayne, and the huh. whole time you're hearing him talk about, you know, you're on the operating table, blah blah blah. All you're hearing is RoboCop, and you cannot <laughs> break that disconnect. <laughs> It's just it, – Michael McKeon plays Dr. Wolper, the guy who's rehabilitating all the guys at Arkham, Two-Face and Joker and whatever. And Michael McKeon lays back, blends into the role, does a pretty good job. But Peter Weller is Peter Weller. Sometimes he opens his mouth and you just yeah. Yeah, can't break it. He has a very distinctive voice. Even when I heard him on a podcast, I, I definitely just kept picturing RoboCop the whole time. Or, or, or Burroughs. RoboCop being interviewed about his time at Harvard. Can you imagine <laughs> if William Burroughs and RoboCop were like combined into one person? Like, William, you know, Peter Weller's character. Well, just you because know, Peter Weller happened? played in Naked Lunch. I was just thinking Peter Weller oh, from Naked Lunch. I see. I almost want William says Burroughs to be RoboCop. His <laughs> wife probably would prefer it. <laughs> Dead or alive, come with I me. Just, yeah, I just, I keep thinking of... Uh, I just keep thinking of William S. Burroughs in a drugstore cowboy and mm. that sort of slow way he talked. Or it's like, <laughs> your move creep before the systematic extermination of your delinquency. <laughs> like, that's, like, that's how I see that. Uh, do you see anything else? Um, uh, through, I'm going through my pile. I got my review pile right next to me. I've been watching a lot of TV recently. I mean, yeah. And I'm trying to hunt down like a movie I've been watching outside. Oh, Sweet Kill. I watched Sweet Kill. Shot Factory sent that over for me to review. I've been watching that. I love Corman in the 70s when he stopped directing and started just producing more stuff. You had St. Jack. You had all that New World Cinema stuff come out. And him actually getting Omicord and the Bergman stuff released over here. But Sweet Kill, it's one of Kurt Han- Curtis Hansen's first movies. Oh, He's wow. I like, like Curtis Hansen. I really like that guy. He's a good director. Oh, he worked up to it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Tab Hunter plays this gym teacher who Mm -hmm. has this complicated sexual past with his mother until he realizes that, you know what? If I start killing these hookers I meet, then I can fulfill my sexual gratification. And there's a scene in the middle of it where where he's at school and he's he's a gym teacher and he's having to explain sex or health ed to students. It's just the way it was structured. It's the scene that never ends. It takes two minutes, but it feels like 30. He's just doing this, you know, like early 70s, you know, boys got to do this, 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 and this. And it never ends. And just the awkwardness, it hits like my personal, like, brain center for, I love awkward humor. And especially when it's unintentional. Yeah, I am. I am right with you there. (laughs) Is it, is it like a typical sort of no budget, uh, like, exploitation movie where it's just like a lot of filler like that well if you're used to corman in the 70s like cage heat stuff like demi was doing yeah. for him mm. and Kaplan, it's that sort of shot in two weeks done move on to the next one 
Right. Yeah, before he did stuff like L.A. Confidential and uh, I think he did the Wonder, Wonder, Boys. Wonder Boys, yeah, which is one of my favorites uh, of his. I. It's crazy. I think he did stuff like Bad Influence and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, sort of more B-level kind of kind of films that, you know, were very uh, – just the 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 screenplays were were very by the numbers, and you kind of knew what to expect. And certainly, they came out around the time when all those were were kind of the rage. After your Fatal Attractions or Stalker movies were were uh, yeah. very popular. According to IMDb, he has a movie with one of my favorite titles ever called Evil Town. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it seems so simple, but the way the, the way the phrase Evil Town rolls off the tongue is just delightful. <laughs> Couldn't be any worse than that shitty poker movie you did. Oh, what's that? Lucky? Did he like Lucky? You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Oh, that was completely forgettable. Yeah. But you know what's really great about Sweet Kill? After an hour of seeing Tab Hunter go nuts and kill all these women and all the awkward stuff, Angus Scrim, the tall man from the Fantastic yes. shows up. It's just like, I made movies before 1987. Bye. <laughs> Does he still... Like, does he look exactly like Anger Scrim of Phantasm, or does, or is it like a weird? Oh, this is young tall man. It's more like middle aged tall man versus old tall man. Hmm. I can't uh, imagine it. I can't picture. I'm like, I, I just stopped. I paused there to be like, what would that? No, I know. I had to like take a second to picture it in my head, and I can't get. I'm, I can't I'm look, get there. I'm, look, I'm looking at a picture of Anger Scrim right now, and like. Mentally trying to maybe like add hair, but I, it's not working. Not even more hair; just like a little bit of hair, like a little ring of hair, and like a little brown, and that's it. I want to marathon the Phantasm movies at some point. I I think they're I, a lot I of just want to. I think I haven't seen any of the other ones other than the first one. Oh really? Oh two no. is two is good. I think. Two's great. Yeah, yeah. I remember just it being those. awesome. Uh, I do kind of. I mean, I love that the Phantasm movies, like as far as. Uh, no but you know low budget slasher franchises go they're definitely the most ambitious like you know you can make an well, witchcraft like you can make like 19 witchcraft movies because there's just nothing to them yeah but but like Coscarelli had no money and he's just like well fuck it i'll make phantasm four anyway <laughs> <laughs> you know what killed me up at the end of the first phantasm is that the whole main action happens and the kid gets away and then they stop and they have like this Summer's Eve quiet moment where Reggie and him are talking about everything you think happened didn't happen. Yeah. And they're sitting there and it's soft lighting and they're talking. I was thinking like make out in like two seconds. Of course, I was coming off because when I was about 10, I saw Phantasm 2. And then I didn't see any other Phantasm movies until I was in college. And I was thinking, yeah, these movies are badass, quad shotgun. And then you get to that and it's like, why? stylistic change what yeah Uh, it always cracks me up when they when they try to sort of like this is just crazy fun shit and then they try to like sort of add some pathos to it at the end i think my i think my favorite example is gremlins which is just like a ultimate wonderful looney tunes movie and at the end the old chinese man shows up to just wag his finger at everybody and that's the note the movie ends on (laughs) (laughs) it's just like hey all that fun you were having it's no good (laughs) <laughs> he leaves. Yeah, that'd be a good idea topic for the future to think about. Just like movies that end on a very strange note that seems kind of out of place, but but that doesn't like take it. You know, make make you mean, or like break Jungle the Fever. Movie. <laughs> 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 the best one. That's definitely the best. One. That's a me second. <laughs> oh man, um, 
Jim, what did you see? Uh, Very little. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been a ridiculously busy couple of weeks for me. And, uh, you know, I, I probably should have mentioned this up front. Normally, I try to watch the two selected films, uh, you know, for the podcast a day or two before we record just so they are fresh in my mind, you know. And I'm, I'm, I know you do kind of do the same thing, Patrick. And then, of yeah. course, I goofed last week because I thought I'd scheduled this episode for last week. So I just kind of should apologize and say if my memory is a bit fuzzier when we actually get to talking about the two main movies. Although I did my best to sort of refresh my memory and do some reading and watch some clips and whatnot. Because I, hey, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the incredible imagery from Mr. Bakshi is going to stay in my head forever. (laughs) It's sort of like immortalized because of just how unique it is. But I think the only other thing, and once again, just because it was so freaking short and I had uh, access to it, um, I managed to catch uh, Sleepwalk with me. Uh, Mike Berbiglia. (laughs) I can't even say it right. Mike Berbiglia. There we go. Yeah, he uh, wrote and directed this. Um, sort I believe of... he wrote it. He wrote it with Tyra Glass. Oh yeah, he might have. Yeah, I think they. Yeah, they might have collaborated on the screenplay. You're right. Um, I did enjoy it. It's it's my kind of romantic comedy. Like I said, it's it clocks in around 80 minutes, so it flies by. Uh, it has some of my favorite comedians doing cameos and showing up in uh, very amusing uh, roles here and there throughout. I was very entertained by it, but I definitely have kind of an issue. Uh, but it's it's weird. It's it, I don't think everybody's going to have the same issue. I was entertained despite not thinking it was consistently laugh out loud funny, and I think I know why that might be. And I'm I'm curious to see where you might stand on this, Patrick. Sleepwalk with me, in many instances, is pretty much a straight transcription of his one-man show. Like, oh, it's, yeah. it is his stand-up routine almost word-for-word word verbatim. If you've heard This American Life, uh, like, uh, there's an episode on sleep disorders, I, I believe, or if you've heard some of his stand-up routines or his one-man show, that a lot of the dialogue in this movie is replicated line-for-line. Line. I just kept having crazy deja vu throughout the entire movie going, I've heard that before. I've heard that dialogue before. I've heard that before. I've heard that I, story before. <laughs> that, that's sort of a sensation we'll be talking about later when we you know, discuss Lord of the Rings. But yeah, like it can be very frustrating if, if a movie doesn't really give – if a movie doesn't really give a great reason for existing. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're going to do a Shakespeare adaptation, you better have a fucking reason to make it a film. You know, like if you're going to – and if you're going to you know, translate, you know, do any kind of adaptation, it better not just be putting what you did into a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple story. It's just but a- I, I, I personally have – I'm sorry. I'm, I have not seen the uh, – uh, I have not seen his one-man show or heard the This American Life episodes he was on. So I wonder if – I mean, that probably won't be an issue for me. Have you heard his stand-up records at all? Uh, I heard I heard two drink Mike. I'm not a big fan of him. He is like all of his material seems to be sort of based around like I'm so mild, like the world <laughs> is too much, and I'm very mild mannered. And it's like a little it's bit like, a, <laughs> like it's and unfortunately like his his comedy is also very mild and very just kind of milk toast. I think like what he is to stand up like common is to rapping. Where, <laughs> where of it's course like, yeah, you would come up with that. 
Well, that's yeah, like, no, that I, makes I, sense. I, I, you know, like you're technically good at what you do, but it's just like, man, you are not interesting. <laughs> like you are really not like a fast, well, you know, fascinating, uh, and you're not taking any risks. You know what like, interests me? Sleep disorders, psychological things. Right. He brings it right. up in his routine, and it's in this movie. I don't think there's. I don't think there's a lot about it, and in, in on that one album, I heard to drink, Mike. Uh, no, but like he just sort of delves into sort of having anxiety issues. But I think in this movie, you don't have to be a struggling stand-up comedian with a sleep disorder to relate to it. I think it's pretty easy for the average <laughs> Joe to, to get into this movie, you know? I'm just imagining that as a pull quote on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be a struggling stand-up comedian with a sleep disorder to get into it. You can enjoy like, this movie based on the on the pure basis of a, a sweet romantic comedy. It's you know, but yeah. I think I think what's And as I recall, you're really into Lauren Ambrose as well. Yeah, I kind of am. She's she's adorable. I mean, she's always Lauren Ambrose, but she's great. And I think uh, I think well, the thing about this is like I, I like this overall kind of. I, I think it's been done before in other movies. This idea of your craft or your career being such a substantial part of your life to the point where you can't maintain a relationship, despite a lot of effort to try. You know, I think. That is something a lot of people kind of go through when they're workaholics or whatnot. You know, I, I just I really like that being portrayed in the world of stand-up comedy, where he's like on the road so much and doing ridiculous routes and going on, you know, sixteen-hour drives just to go play some crappy auditorium. I I, I mean, I just I, I feel like. A lot of stand-up comedians. I mean, he's been on so many podcasts. He's been so ubiquitous. And well, he's a yeah. He's he's like a sort of indie like nerds darling because yeah. he's one of the This American Life crew, and he's and he's like you know he like I said he's funny, but he's not threatening in any way. You know. Yeah, I, uh, I, I liked the movie. <laughs> I really liked it. I'm not. I'm not trying. I, I haven't seen the movie. I just. I'm talking about. I think you Virginia. should though, because it's like I said, it's short. I think there are things about it that you're going to like and relate to a little bit. Uh, I, I just don't think it was presented in a very original or cinematic way, other than being kind of like a. That was going to be my next question. Is there any? Is there any indication that Mike Birbiglia is a film director, or no. is this just? Oh, I have a thing that I could. <laughs> You know, like I already did Sleepwalk with me, the one man show and Sleepwalk with me, the book. So now it's time to do Sleepwalk with because he does have a book sleep based on the same thing as well. He just has everything. So now it's time for the movie, but it's not like he doesn't show any actual aptitude. I'm waiting for Sleepwalk with me, me, the podcast. Sleepwalk with me, the uh, breakfast cereal. Sleepwalk with me, the (laughs) flamethrower. Well, I mean, he, he obviously loves Annie Hall. Who doesn't? That's definitely plays. There's some cute little homages to that in there. He's you know, and and it has the whole Lena Dunham sort of lo-fi sensibility to it. And he manages to get away with something I normally hate in movies, and that is he talks to the camera. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I was like, okay, you don't. He doesn't do it consistently throughout the entire movie. Only a little bit here and there. And I give it a pass. I'm giving this whole movie a pass. I don't love it, but. For a good-natured romantic comedy, I think it works. It's it's very enjoyable. <coughs> so, what about you, Patrick? I'm I'm surprised. Well, first, of all, I'm surprised. Like, 
<laughs> I had in my head that like Lauren Ambrose, like and like Allison Pill were the same. Like, like I love Allison Ambrose, Pill too. Like yeah, Lauren Ambrose turned into Allison Pill like. <laughs> <laughs> like Lost Highway style where like Lauren Ambrose is like, well, my career is over, but all of the roles that I would be taking if I still had a career, that's that's now on you, Allison Pill. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I thought was going on there. Yeah, she sort of disappeared for a little while. Yeah. I wonder what shouldn't. that was about. I don't know. No, I, I really like her on Six Feet Under. Me too. Um, I didn't really get a chance to watch a lot, but I one of the things I did do is I spent a lot of time because, you know, it's important to sort of, if you're going to explore an artist you you should sort of understand the context of where he's coming from so i spent a lot of time looking up sort of the history of animation you know as 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 can be seen on youtube uh which is which is actually like a pretty good like other than disney you can get like pretty much any feature length uh, animated film is is available on youtube in chunks or whatever or in one video but i discovered an animator who I've never heard of before, who's really great, uh, whose name I'm not sure I can pronounce because uh, there's an accent over the R, uh, <laughs> which I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. But it's a, I'll just say Giri Barta. It's J I R I B A R T A, and he's a Czech animator, not not uh, Sven Svenkmeyer, who's the famous Czech animator. He's the other one. Um, but he has this. You know, he he does a lot of different things. He's done a couple live action um, things that are extremely like heightened, like as if he's trying to achieve the you know achieve a sort of a cartoon look in live action, uh, where all the acting is heightened and all the set designs really heightened, and sort of the way the camera is static is very sort of animation. But um, he has this really so he's done a lot of different styles. He's done stop motion. Um, you know he he's done that, but he's also one of my favorite uh, films I found of his is a short film. It's like nine minutes long called Disc Jockey, and it's just a day in the life of a, of a DJ. Oh, we should link to um, that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we will. It's from like 1980, so the DJ is just like the DJ is not scratching or anything. He's just like playing records at a party. Mm-hmm. But um, but what's really great about it is it's. Um, it has a very simplistic kind of pop art uh, style where where all the you know all the drawings are very simple, um, and instead of uh, animating frames of uh, where you know you'll see someone walking and it'll be like twelve frames of each of that you know moving, um, he focuses on small objects that he can just rotate a still picture, um, and that's how he anim- he mostly animates that way where it's just about moving pictures he's drawn around the frame instead of um instead of having to draw individual frames so the animation's very smooth looking you know because you, you don't have to worry about any of that but one of the things i really love about it is it's it's kind of hyper focuses it tells you know it's not much of a story story it doesn't have much of a plot but it's it tells the story of the disc jockey waking up and getting ready for work and going to work and playing music and people dancing but it tells it all in extremely close up images where you'll just see a buttonhole and then a button being pushed through it and then you'll huh. just see a close up of an egg as he, it gets cracked and or just like the the very middle of a record as it's spinning um and it's and i like and there's uh, the scene where he eats breakfast is li- almost shot for shot the exact same as what Darren Aronofsky did in Requiem for a Dream with Ellen Burstyn's character. 
Oh, cool. To the point where it has to like Aronofsky has to have seen this film and like it does the like it shows the egg in the in the egg holder and then it shows the egg holder empty with part of the shell in it, you know. Yeah. And with a sound effect to indicate the the you know the consumption of the egg and like he does a lot of that um, and it's really you know kind of interesting and beautiful and I'd never heard of him. Um, and one of the nice things about directors who mostly work in short forms is that you don't have to sort of track down DVDs. A lot of short films and stuff will be put on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was I watched a lot of his stuff. So I recommend people check out uh, Giri Barta. Um, I found him actually because I was looking up music videos. <laughs> I was looking I was looking up. Uh, have you ever heard of the band Nurse with Wound? I don't think so. Oh, they're Sounds wonderful. Familiar. They're like a noise band. Like hmm. they're it's mostly just like creepy noises with like, you know. Oh, I'm thinking of Head Wound Harry. No. no. Yeah, this is <laughs> What? Wait, what is Head Wound Harry? That's a skit from Saturday Night Live with Dana oh, Carvey see. showing up to a dinner party with a head wound and it's kind of it's kind of famous for him having this, you know, uh makeup effect or like this wig with the head wound. And he's at one point sitting on a couch, and there's this dog. <laughs> he starts eating the uh, the wig in front of everybody, and it was completely like not planned, and it was improvised. And the dog is you should watch it. It's, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. On you can access it. I'm sure. And then and then it's and then it's like everyone breaking. Yeah, yeah everybody's breaking because nobody expected the dog to start eating his head. <laughs> it's ridiculous <laughs> and awesome. Yeah, somehow I've never seen that. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, what I I was looking up videos and some like someone some there was a fan made video for one of their songs that mm. was set to clips from Jerry Barta movies and it was like very fucking creepy and it was you know very interesting. So well, I, I mean, decided I, to check. Out. I, I know you. Uh, I don't know if it was on Facebook or Twitter, but at one point you were. I don't know if you. Were, I would say you went on like a tirade about adults watching animation or something i think it was more spawned from uh it wasn't no, no it's about adults watching children's shows oh okay that, children's programming right no that makes more sense right but i sort of I, yeah, I don't is, know. An, animation is the only uh only field where adults feel comfortable i yeah i sort of i definitely you know i, I feel like I, re- I reached an age at some point where i don't get as excited to go see the latest disney movie or i, I don't watch children's shows or animation as actively as I did. I feel like after something like the Powerpuff Girls, I feel like that was that was my maybe it after that. I mean, I I think I watched some of the adult swim programming, but never on a regular basis. I never devoted myself to watching the, like something like Aqua Teen Hunger Force or Sea Lab. I only watched it because my other friends were watching it in the same room or whatever and sometimes I found it really funny. Other times I just, you know, shrugged it off and didn't think it was you know, well, no, no, I have nothing against animation. I love animation. That's why I was excited to talk about Ralph Bakshi. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, and I, you know, and there are films that the way they got funded was that they were, con- you know, the people and the pe- the power, you know, the the creative artists. They go, we're going to make this movie, and you can pitch it to kids. But the movies mm-hmm. aren't really for kids. They just happen to be kid friendly. Yeah, you know. Which is like there's a huge difference between something like My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, and Up, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, f- like I would definitely Up, find it weird if, you know, watching Saturday morning cartoons or you know, like, My Little Pony and stuff. That would be. You know, this is an animation, but like the French film The Red Balloon, like that's a 
that's a film that you could pitch as a kid's movie as you know as a kid's fantasy but it's not but it's not like made for kids it's actually just a really like interesting fantasy you know kind of surreal movie Mm -hmm. um i don't i but my sort of my thesis behind all these thoughts like isn't really complete so i i've talked with gabe about doing like a bonus episode sometime but oh cool i just i feel like a lot of people the work the part the thing it's not i don't care what people watch they can watch whatever they want but it annoys me that people give a pass we talked about this about paranorman remember Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't want to bring it up again but uh yeah i just feel like people give a pass to animated movies because any flaws that they have that they would get ripped on if they were for adults they go well it's for kids but you're not a kid so why are you giving that a pat like you know what i mean yeah, no, that makes sense. Sure. So, but I don't know. I don't have. I haven't watched all of the things that people, you know, watch that are kids programming. I did watch some Adventure Time. I enjoyed that. That, that seems uh, not, like something I might like. So it's a little too. It's a little too internet humory, where it's just like it's kind of wacky and bro, and they use bro, but it's kind of ironic, like bro speak, like they, you know, like. Hmm. Uh, but if it's like, surreal and absurd, I might like it. No, it is, and I I think you would. Okay. Um, Good to know. What about you? What about you, Troy? Do you watch any cartoons? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I just listened to some of your complaints. It was like, yes, a lot of people tend to give free pass animation in terms of stuff that they would tear apart anyone else. You know, this is what kind of killed me when Brave got more of a free pass from people than Prometheus did, and it was just like, huh. But I shrug it off because as being an animation hound as I am, I just tend to let a whole lot of stuff go because it's a shit on – I don't want to call it a genre because it's not a genre. It's a technological process. It just gets shit on. I mean the only other kind of film that gets shit on more is horror. It's true. And yeah. I, that's not that's mm-hmm. not what I – that's not what I intend. Like mm-hmm. you know, like I watched – I didn't watch it. Uh, I started to and then I didn't have time. But Castle Caliastro, the uh, Loop in the Third movie from the 70s. Yeah. Like there's a lot of – great animated movies and great animated show i think home movies is one of the best shows ever i think uh simpsons is like the best show you know like it's not my favorite show but i think simpsons is the best show i think like there i think there's a lot of really beautiful animation um uh i really i I like that adult swim is adult swim has been able to sort of smuggle in really out there alternative subversive comedy um, Definitely. By it being animation, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the actual animation in those shows tends to be horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like a, a lot of Adult Swim programming, it's 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 not like they don't care about anime. That's one of the things I like. I don't think Super Jail is very funny, but I adored Super Jail because they really like spent a lot of time on the hand drawn animation and the sort of Mad Magazine sensibilities and. Um, but no, I and I'm not. It's not about animation um, because I, it's also a thing where people, you know, adults are reading, uh, you know, kids books. You know, they'll read a young adult novels and stuff like that. It's also, you know, that. So it's not just um, animation, and it's not, and it's not all. It's more about rest development. Yeah, but I. It's it's about. I think people like things that are easy to watch. I like. I think people like to turn their brain off, but I think that people don't admit it. <laughs> so is, is it be like if I was watching Sesame Street? No. Oh, okay. Sesame Street's educational. <laughs> yeah. That's a different realm. Um, but, you know, like Teen- I went back, I watched 
Dexter's Laboratory, that's not a funny show. <laughs> you know, like that just isn't. Uh you know, uh so I don't know. I wonder but, how it would feel if I went back and watched like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, it would be horrible. Yeah. It'd be the worst. Especially hmm. cuz back then like the animation wasn't even that great. Right. Um like if you, I don't know if you ever like I grew up watching the uh, Spider-Man on Fox Kids or whatever. Hmm. I've gone back and looked at it. It is it is the wor- like it looks like a motion comic. It's just like one static, <laughs> you know, with one thing moving at a single time. And um, well, that's back when they learned how to do CG interstitials. So every like go between shot is a poorly rendered CG, like New York downtown. A oh, right. oh yeah. yeah. I think I was just more confused why Garfield and Peter Venkman had the same voice when I was a kid. It's like what? I, why? What? I, that doesn't seem right to me. I was confused. I, I was yeah. just—I thought Peter Venkman should have the exact same voice as he did in the Ghostbusters movie, but I guess not. And I got really upset when I found out that Uncle Phil and Shredder were the same. <laughs> <laughs> that really fucked me up. <laughs> um, but I think all this talk about animation would be is a good transition point to talk about the uh, director of the episode, Ralph Boxy. Well, you just did that really fast, Patrick. Why don't we? Don't aren't we supposed to you say never? Because it never shows up. Remember when we're skyping? Yeah. You I never guess hear me. That's true. But you threw me for a loop. I was like, whoa. He just like he just you just went for it. You went right in yeah. there. There was like yeah. no foreplay this time. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll 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 let it slide, but you know, once we finally get back in the same room. Oh, get... don't worry. I'll I'll make love. Okay, I'll make good. love. Don't worry about that. Good. I like it slow. Yeah. Make a journey called to bloody cannon body POP! Heavy traffic quits like a head of a cannon POP! Being big injection to the sword of the wings! A turn for Foxy! A turn for Foxy! That's why he made movie, 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 that is so fucked up! Ralph Bakshi was born in Israel in 1938 before moving to the infamous Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. He was a delinquent youth, but took up an interest in cartooning, which led to him getting a job as a cell polisher at the Terrytune studio. He quickly worked his way up to director and, finally, series creator with The Mighty Heroes. But Boxy found himself frustrated with the limitations of children's programming and struck out on his own, forming Boxy Productions and creating the first X-rated film, Fritz the Cat. Riding high on a string of successes following, Boxy went to United Artists and convinced them to let him adapt one of the most beloved fantasy epics of all time, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, which was uh, faulted by critics for its darkness and violence, but uh, his ambitious take on this beloved classic allowed him a more substantial budget, along with a crew of about 150 animators to accompany him. Its pioneering use of rotoscoping to its rather uh, determination to shove cuddly hobbits into the end times without worrying about the children's demographic. Bakshi's uh, Lord of the Rings was a rather kind of defiant box office success. 
His enthusiasm, his enthusiasm to bring these characters to life using fully realized illustration as opposed to conceptualizing them as cartoons brought forth another distinctive entry into his filmography. Bakshi's dark perspective, like Tolkien's before him, came from witnessing a world lost in war's aftermath, where today's comforts and conveniences were unthinkable. Bakshi's version is also a showcase for inspired imagery and kind of some sheer strangeness before the cult of Tolkien went Hollywood from a fun-loving hobbit from New Zealand named Peter Jackson. (laughs) Um, I'm going to start out by saying that my review for for this take on Lord of the Rings should come with a warning label. The the fantasy genre is not my thing to the point of intolerance at times. Uh, you know, Peter Jackson's version of the series, I admired the epic scope of it all, but it's not something I'm overly excited to ever rewatch anytime soon. I'm I think that they're uh, just like I said, just the the, the visual style of it I really, really appreciate. I think it's just the length. I'm kind of intimidated by some of the, uh, you know, the extended cut. And even I was restless watching it in the theater. But it's probably just because this is not my 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 genre in general. But I was very curious because I'm a, a Bakshi fan now, officially, after seeing quite a few of his films here for the podcast. And I really... I, I really liked some elements of his uh, version of this. I, I certainly found myself, whether in, uh, uh, unintentionally or not, laughing a little bit more just because there is some over-the-top kind of illustrations of Gandalf like reacting, you know, to uh, Frodo saying, uh, "I'll give the ring to you." He's like, "No," you know. He just uh, there was some like more over-emotional. Uh, kind of uh, execution of these characters here that I kind of enjoyed, but uh, a lot of them were really uh, badly conceived, like especially Sam. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think they're just, again, I think it's, it's, it's overall kind of a failure. Like, cause again, I felt, you know, it was too long and him, him trying to sandwich in two books into one. And the, the ending here is, just sort of trails off and but I, I do think that it has moments where I was like, oh this is really cool. I, I mean I like his take on the uh the Black Riders and especially the the first I just like the animation style in general, the first hour and or the first half of the movie especially. So uh overall I, I, I'm more in the middle on this one because I again I think it's it's got it's got things that you come to expect from Bakshi that I admire just visually, but um, in terms of the story, it's not something that I gravitate towards in general. Yeah, I I mean we should give we should give the caveat that we're probably the only uh, hosts of a film podcast who don't like Lord of the Rings. Um, we're we're the only nerds who go I'm, there. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I. Uh, I just don't yeah, get yeah, overly yeah. excited I, I, about they're, it. I, they're not bad movies. They're yeah. just not for us. Right. Um, and uh, I would like to give the caveat that I, I rather like this movie, but um, a lot of things I like about this movie uh, I don't remember from uh, Peter Jackson's, like just certain little touches and mm-hmm. Peter Jackson's films. They might be there and I'm just forgetting. So uh, I'm sure at some point I'll say something really stupid uh, or you know something really ignorant about this uh, 
about the story that uh, we'll have nerds screaming at their iPods, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Um, no, I really like this movie. I love rotoscoping. Rotoscoping yes. is just the greatest. It's, I completely like, agree. It's a technique that just looks great to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think my biggest problems with the movie just come from the same problems that uh, would you know plague Bakshi at every movie, which is just that he never got the budgets that he needed. Um, he never got yeah. the sort of studio backing that he needed uh, because as a way of saving um, money, instead of rotoscoping, they uh, they just inserted footage that was um, – uh, what's the word? Polarized or uh, I'm going to look up the but they they inserted footage and instead of actually drawing over the footage, they just, uh, you know, up the contrast and um, changed color. So it kind of looks like a cartoon, but it mostly looks like real people. Um, yeah, that happens more towards the uh, end with the with the final battle. I noticed that a lot more. Right, yeah. As as the movie goes on, with the orcs especially, yeah. they just didn't – like you could just tell oh, he didn't have a budget to actually animate over all of the orcs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is the uh, term I'm looking for? Uh, posterized. Oh, okay. Posterized. Posterization. Yeah. Um, so they just posterized this, this footage, but because some of the characters are uh, – are actually drawn on like rotoscoped and some are just posterized. It's really awkward looking um, to the mm-hmm. point where like from shot to shot, there'll be a Gandalf that is animated and then a Gandalf that's just been posterized. Yeah. I noticed uh-huh. that more in the second half. It almost seemed like maybe yeah, because well, of just, budgetary constraints. Well, yeah. Cause the big battle scenes would be the most expensive to animate. Sure. That um, makes sense. So, and I really do believe that, you know, if you had the money to just, you know, have anim- like more animators or to have more time and to finish all the animation, it wouldn't look so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love the rotoscoping. I love the, the way he structured the story, which is, you know, not uh, unnotable that Peter Jackson pretty much skipped all of the same things from Fellowship of the Ring, the first uh, book. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it more on an entertaining level just because of those little touches that Bakshi would bring to this version um troy how do you feel about lord of the rings well the whole ex, you know broad emotions you were talking about the face it's a fuck up of rotoscoping rotoscoping <laughs> you're having to match quicker to get your shots in and you have so many other animators working to hit the matches that uh, okay. you're having to extend the look so someone yawning becomes someone almost like you know gnarling at the air so that it shows up if you notice whenever they're facing sideways to the camera Mm-hmm. Their ear will disappear. Like you'll see an ear, oh, but there'll yeah. be no detail to it. It's because they keep matching. They have to make sure the face matches. So they're doing this back in seventies by hand. They blow certain shots. Like parts of neck will disappear. Parts of ear will disappear. You can watch it the whole way through. Right. But going back to it, United Artists screwed him as much as they did right by him because John Borman was supposed to do Lord of the Rings before Bakshi got it. And Borman freaked out United Artists, so they were looking for anyone else to take it over. And he pretty much was the first one to go, I think I can do it. And that's how he got it. And then they started warming up because he goes, I can do an animated. And they're like, yeah, yeah, kids movie, kids movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we got halfway through it, they started the whole way you're talking about, it's not part one anymore, and we want a holiday release. So we had to do 30 minutes of animation in about two and a half months. That's Which is- why you're thinking. Yeah, the ending, the Helm's Deep. That's why Helm's mm-hmm. Deep looks so rushed. There yeah. are certain shots where the orcs are coming up a hill, 
the shots that he stole of the union workers that are actually in costume being, you know, the rotoscoped in, mm. running over to get craft services because they heard the brake whistle and they're going to get food. <laughs> so you'll see that shot where there's like eight or nine of them running over a hill or running somewhere. It's the same eight or nine teamsters going to get free food. And and like from a when it's when when it's the long shots when you see it like when the when they when they're not so up close the, po- the posterization oh like kind of works but as soon as you get up close and you see how horrible the costume and makeup of all mm-hmm. the of all the orcs are and how it's not being hidden by the animation it's like really um, dreadful I could go like piece by piece and say which things I like better in this and which things I like in Jackson like I. I think this. I think the Frodo in this is better. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I feel like Elijah Wood is kind of just a wide-eyed audience uh, identification character <laughs> in in the Jackson's movies. I don't really feel his arc as much as I feel Frodo's arc in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I really like Frodo in this. Um, I think Sam is closer to the book. Like he's more of a servant uh, in the books. I ne- I never finished the first book, and I so uh, my knowledge is limited. But uh, I, think, I like I like how Sam is a little bit more, you know, empathetic and kind of like a yeah. Buddy. No, I I think Sean Astin is probably one of the best people in the Lord of the Rings movies, and right. I so I definitely like that better. I love the I love the you know what I love is he made a choice to keep the good guys mostly uh, rotoscoped and like when he had to choose what was being animated and what what he just had to do post posterization to to do like quick and get out of the way like i like the that he split them the good and evil um so uh it ends up getting this kind of other world like it actually feels like other forces it doesn't feel like a goblin it feels like a force of evil coming because it it's Mm -hmm. completely separate from the rest of the visual um i love all of the backgrounds the the painted uh background i mean we'll get more into that and american pops are even like a million times better but like uh i love uh bakshi's backgrounds i know obviously he didn't paint them all but you know his it was his sort of vision and design and choices and i love those now you know who worked on it don't you who tim burton that was his first job he was an image shop painter yeah oh yeah i think i heard of that yeah huh so it was a little weird that uh, when Aragorn showed up, I was not expecting him to look that way at all. He looked like Jackie Chan meets Pocahontas I, or something. I can't. <laughs> I just was not. I was so oh, taken man. aback by his choice to make him look that way. The worst part is I can totally imagine uh, Jackie Chan meeting Pocahontas <laughs> meets Pocahontas because I can imagine an SNL sketch in which Jackie Chan plays <laughs> Pocahontas. <laughs> or I feel um, like that Christmas card with. With John Lovitz and Phil Hartman, like playing Frankenstein and uh, Tonto. Do you know? Right, what? right. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I can't believe they they had John Hurt in the movie, but they did yeah. make him Gandalf. They made him Aragorn. Like John Hurt has a wizard's voice. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you... that is weird. Right. I don't buy. I don't know. No. I have a hard time with Ian McKellen. That's why I tell people I go. When I grew up, Rankin and Bass were it. I hear John Huston every single time I hear Gandalf. I can't make the connection with Ian McKellen. Yeah, I haven't. I have not seen Rankin and Bass's Hobbit movie, but hmm. um, like every time John Hurt talks, like something in my brain thought it was Gandalf, because uh, he just he feels like <laughs> he feels like fucking Gandalf. Um, he must have had a hard time with three PO's Legolas. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, they don't give Legolas anything to do in this. Yeah, that's true. Like, Legolas shows up, and then Sam gets a hard-on because he's an elf, and that's the end of, like, Legolas. Did you see that moment where, like, um, Aragorn was telling the story on the campfire? There's this one kind of funny moment where, like... <laughs> Where Frodo and Sam are, it looks like they're about to embrace and kiss. Yeah, it was just weird. Sh- like, like he puts his hand on his shoulder after like Aragorn is telling a story, and he's like, it has this happy ending, and Sam is like, oh, it has this happy ending. I'm gonna put my hand on your shoulder, and they like lean into each other. But that's when the, uh, um, the I guess the is it the Black Riders they start showing up. Yeah, that was just, weird. just there's just weird little just touches like this? that, huh? Yeah, well, because yeah. yeah. Peter Jackson's movie, it's not just a scene. It's it's, it's like that's the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think something else I want to talk about with Lord of the Rings is sort of the status of Lord of the Rings as a cultural land, land uh, sort sort of a cultural touchstone. Hmm. Like it's weird how much it's changed because. Like, there's a reason Ralph Bakshi wanted to do Lord of the Rings, and it wasn't because he likes good-natured, kind-hearted fantasy. Like, this was, at one point, like, super countercultural, and yeah. this was yeah. about, you know, this is, Lord of the Rings was for hippies, you know? Uh, um, there is, there is, I read, I heard this great interview with Ralph Bakshi where he's like, Lord of the Rings was for us, it wasn't for those in East Queens. Like, right. still, <laughs> I, number one, I love that Ralph Bakshi's worldview is still defined by different boroughs of New York, but, like, yeah, like, and... It's weird that by the time, uh, you know, you got to 2001, like part of what made Lord of the Rings so popular was just that it was so eat good versus evil and kind hearted mm-hmm. and kind of uh, and unambiguous. And um, like it was the ultimate sort of mainstream uh, blockbuster. Uh, uplift, yeah, blockbuster. uplifting. Yeah. Um, you know, a very unironic and sincere and in, in ways that, you know, very few other you know, kind of movies were. Uh, blockbuster movies were then and it's it's crazy to me that you know from the 60s to 1978 to to uh to now how lord of the rings has sort of changed hands and i don't think any of them are I, and what's crazy is that i don't think any of it is wrong like i don't think no. it used to be for hippies but then they perverted it like i think peter jackson's lord of the rings is a good version of lord of the rings you know like absolutely um so i thought that was really Interesting. It's weird seeing a boxy movie uh, in which he's reverent because, like, <laughs> I, I mean, like, up to this point, like, you, the only way you could define his movies was, like, what, what, what brings them all together where they're just super irreverent and he doesn't – and they're just, like, I don't give a shit. And, mm-hmm. um, like, maybe Wizards is a little closer to Lord yeah. of the Rings because it's a kid's movie, but it's still super violent and it's still post-apocalyptic and – it's still kind of weird and subversive in ways that, you know, Lord of the Rings is decidedly not. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad it wasn't completely light and fanciful. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there's some really dark and creepy stuff in this. I, like the, the low angle shot of the rider on his horse while the hobbits are hiding I away. Love the, I love the, the scene where they get off the road and they're sort of hiding uh, in, yeah. a, in a ditch as the rider looks on, like the way he moves. Cause I, Peter Jackson's writers, they always look like super badass, like they're just like demons from hell. And, and mm-hmm. like this, he looks more like he moves more like Gollum, like he's sort of slinking around and weird and his posture's all bad, like 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 he's been perverted by the ring. And I like that. Or the, po- uh, the poison uh, of the knife. Uh, like I just his little touches, even 
I don't think the um, once he puts on the ring for the first time, I don't think that whole battle sequence is anything spectacular. Once things go in slow motion, but I kind of just like the uh, the music. I thought the, I thought the score was pretty cool. Uh, you know, I just just little things throughout the movie. I kind of went, well, that's I like that touch and this. Touch he, he originally here. wanted it to be scored with uh, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Linda Roseman's pretty good. Yeah. No, I think I like it the is. score. I do yeah. too. I Star Trek I... Four. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have an opinion on the score. I'm not a score guy, but uh, no, I like I like it, and I think that if it was part one, if it was Lord of the Rings part one, and there was a part two, and I really think I would love it. And he had enough money to sort of yeah not make it look so crappy towards the end with with all the big battle sequence like. The parts that you really need to look great look the worst, unfortunately. But here's Whereas, the thing. Even, even if he got a part two, when would it be coming out? It would have been late summer, early fall 1980 from United Artists. If you don't know the timeline for that, Empire. It, Heaven's Gate. <laughs> yeah. That been, I don't know. I think he would have. And I love Bakshi. I think he's one of the best directors in America, which I'll go into later. But I could see him because he, he's a guy who gets shit on. Paramount shit on Cold, with Cold World. He got shit on by Fox. He got shit on by everybody. Yeah. And I could see him taking the blame when United Artists fell, saying, well, it's because of this. Heaven's Gate would have been a great movie that would have saved everything, but no, they'd blow all the money on this animated bullshit, blah, blah, blah. Or what if, what if the alternate history is that because they had Lord of the Rings, they couldn't give, <laughs> they, they couldn't give Michael Cimino or... Uh, you pronounce the name? Uh, they couldn't give him all that money to blow, and uh, then Michael just was forced to make a reasonable movie, and he saves <laughs> he saves Hollywood. That's, that's see, that's the- what kills me about that. Who do you think they're going to tell no to? Bakshi, who pretty much pisses off everybody, or Camino, who's just coming off a bunch of Oscars. Right. Well, it's all fantasy, so I'm just yeah. I'm picturing my favorite one. But yeah, no, you're you're right. <laughs> you're correct. I'm like the watcher up in this bitch. Um, yeah, it's it's sad that uh, I mean, it's sad that he always gets fucked around. But at the same time, like he is like he's sort of an unrepentant asshole to everybody. So, like if he just if he like if he was a little better at playing the game and a little, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure that he would have had a different career. Well, it's just interesting. Um, I mean, at least this one is pretty coherent throughout and very consistent. And you know, it's still got his like idiosyncratic. I flavor through one of the best things about rotoscoping is that when you add live action elements like like for example when they're trekking through the snow like for some reason it feels right like it feels like it's part even though it's or uh the when they're in the elf the elf little cave village with yeah. the Kate Blanchett or <laughs> I don't know the character know. names but like, yeah her like looking glass and that's all like live action ripples and stuff like you can add those elements and it feels right. It doesn't feel like it's part of something else because because the whole thing has sort of the appearance uh, and feel of live action. Right. Um, and it's and one of the things I like about Ralph Bakshi is that he is just constantly experimenting. Um, like heavy heavy traffic, I would not call a great movie, but it is one <laughs> of the most like formalistically daring movies <laughs> like ever. Um, yeah. And he just it's just keeps taking chances and it just keeps going crazy places and he keeps trying out new ideas as far as animation, as far as how can I tell the story differently? What can I do? There's that whole amazing sequence where uh, like God with God and Jesus being crucified and 
all of the like crucified mobsters and stuff like like heavy traffic is uh is fucking ambitious and daring and exciting and i don't i don't think it all gels but like that's ralph boxy like he's gonna take chances he's gonna have live action um you know sort of bookends for coonskin uh and he's gonna have like animated characters on photo backgrounds and I am constantly Stuff. enthralled by his aesthetic choices, like the yeah. the, the kaleidoscopic rotoscoping over live video, the still photographs, and you know just serving as backgrounds for the animation, or you know, and, and, and with Coonskin, it's like uh, there's so many moments where I'm I'm kind of like I can't believe I'm seeing this. I've never seen this in a movie before, and he's got such balls. <laughs> and what's cra- and what's and the craziest thing about it is it's not like oh Ralph Bakshi movies are unlike anything else. Like you can see Coonskin and see stuff you've never seen before. Then you can watch Heavy Traffic and see shit you've never seen before in animation. And then you can move to American Pop and see more stuff that you've just never seen but anything like that. Yeah. Um, like even within films, he goes in very different directions, uh, and he because like like Troy mentioned sort of up prop, one of the key uh, sort of aspects of his creative process is that he's very improvisational, um, and which is like a crazy thing for an animator to be. Like nothing about animation <laughs> should be like uh, all traditional rules about animation say nothing should be improvised. Nothing should you know. Yeah, everything's um, planned everything out and storyboarded. Meticulously planned out. You got to get your timing right. You have to count frames. Uh, I've I've taken animation classes, and just like trying to figure out how someone should fall off a chair, you got to like think about it in your mind with a stopwatch again and again and again, and try to time it out with keyframes and stuff. And the idea that uh, Boxy would just be like, you know what? I thought of a different sequence that we could do, and just <laughs> sort of throw that at the wall. That's why a lot of his movies feel rough, but it's also why a lot of his movies have this vivid life and an energy to them that you don't see in any other animation. Well, what drives him is this, the freedom to do whatever he wants and try it. And, you know, if it fails, it fails. At least he tries. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and that's I, what's I so respect, cool. I, and I respect that more than other people who, I mean, I mean, I've, I've gone, you know, I, I've been hard on like De, Brian De Palma in the past because his films have no, like, cause his films you so often have no content. It's all form. Um, but I don't think that De Palma breaks new ground like Ralph Bakshi does, and no. I think Ralph. I, I don't think that De Palma is sort of. I mean, I guess, I guess it's just the fact that De Palma's id happens like De Palma's raging id happens to be Alfred Hitchcock, you know. Um, <laughs> whereas Ralph Bakshi's raging id is sort of just this uh, crazy, like pulsating uh, life force of counterculture. In America, maybe I just uh, like people's raging ids in general, and yeah, just, it always, just on display. It always, yeah, it makes films more interesting. I just yeah, uh, I li- I, I don't know. Like I like De Palma's bag of tricks, but I think Bakshi's are more interesting. Argument about De Palma. I'm just saying what makes me able to appreciate De Palma, where I mean, what makes me able to appreciate Ralph Bakshi, where in play in in ways that I don't appreciate De Palma. Yeah, um, no, I understand. Much. He's definitely Bakshi's. More, even way more original, just in terms of yeah. execution of his. Because even the Palma, yeah, even the Palma's one. Those I'll do one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me. One for them never comes in the back. She's mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> fuck you! I'm gonna make Mighty Mouse snort cocaine flowers. Okay, great, done. No. <laughs> That's true. Like literally, uh, he made uh, the mighty. Was it the Mighty Heroes? Uh, uh, Mighty Mouse. 
no, oh, the Mighty Heroes well, before in sixties. Oh, the Mighty yeah, Heroes was, a, was that was, cool. That's something that Jim really likes, and that's and Mighty Heroes is definitely if you ever if you ever like Powerpuff Girls, go ahead and look up like an episode or uh, a short you know Mighty Heroes cartoon because it's definitely that sort of we're taking the superhero genre, but we're not taking it seriously, and we're just being silly with it, um, and we're just seeing how weird and sort of subversive we can be in a in a children's uh, sort of setting. But yeah, like even something like that, which. The way Mighty Heroes came about was they were pitching other things um, to was, uh, uh, for Terry Tunes. Yeah, I, I I think it was Terry Tunes. It might have been another animation studio, but they were pitching things and none of them worked. And then Ralph Bakshi just pulled out of his ass because he just needed to sell something, like even something he just pulls out of his ass that he isn't isn't like like one of the things they pitched would later become Wizards, and that was something that he worked on for a long time and was very interested in. Mm-hmm. But even something he just pulls out of his ass that isn't like a passion project of his still is just way crazier and weirder and more original than you know something like De Palma. <laughs> yeah, but De Palma I, wouldn't come up with again, like Tornado a, Man a, and Diaper Man. This is, a, this is a false binary that it's like <laughs> you're either with Bakshi or you're with De Palma. Like that's just a completely <laughs> fictional thing we've made up. I was just trying to maybe portrait – yeah, we should team 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 boxy, team De Palma. You think like you think you could get them to feud at this age? Like I like Boxy's a volatile guy. What do you think you could get like De Palma to do? Uh, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure he's he he could, he. I'm sure he would fight. I'm I'm positive of it. I think he's still got uh, a fire left in him. I don't think he's all jaded and cynical. I think my new life goal is to make. Both De Palma and Bakshi go to the to go to their graves as mortal enemies. I do, <laughs> I think, I the goal my, of this podcast has changed yeah, forever. Absolutely, please send in emails and say which one you're, which one you because you can only like one. That's well, that's the message. I can tell you right now. I know where Matt Gamble sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. Um, but speaking of raging id and speaking of counterculture and speaking of uh, taking tons of chances maybe we should move this into american pop um now in 1981 coming off lord of the rings uh bakshi i believe this was with uh columbia pictures that he made uh american pop Mm -hmm. and it's like i said um like i said uh, when i when i was talking about lord of the rings i said it's the one sort of weird uh thing about Lord of the Rings, it's weird to see Bakshi be reverent about something. Um, but mm-hmm. And it's almost the same with American Pop because you see sort of his raging id, uh, not necessarily toned down in American Pop, but definitely more focused. Um, whereas in Heavy Traffic and Fritz the Cat, there'll just be titties everywhere and you can tell that it's just like, yeah, I like titties. So let's put some titties in the scene and let's have titties <laughs> falling out. Like uh, American Pop opens like in a, at a burlesque show but you never get the feeling that he's sort of ogling the women. Like the women have sort of uh, like lopsided breasts and they're sort of, you know, they're, they're chubbier as women in the, you know, as, as the ideal women in the twenties were, and they have, you know, bellies and stuff. And uh, he's not sort of getting off on it. He's uh, you know, but I think the reason is uh, American pop, despite its name uh, and this, you guys may disagree with me. I feel it's more less of a history of American pop music and more of a history of American sort of counterculture. Yeah, um, that might be that very much. I, I think I, it's, it feels distinctive in that it, it, it I do feel it, it takes music and makes it a character. No, absolutely. The best thing about American pop is I, or at least as far as I will, there's tons of the great things about it, but what I really love about it is how it's paced um, in a way that you don't get too attached to any one character. Yeah. Um, 
but you can still follow it. It's mm-hmm. not so relentlessly paced that you're just like, I don't even know what the fuck's happening or why I should care. Um, because it keeps changing settings. It keeps changing styles. The music keeps changing. Um, the, ca- the leads keep changing. They keep having kids um, like relentlessly. This is an epic movie that spans from the, you know, the early days of vaudeville to, uh, you know, to hardcore the trash punk kind of yeah, scene. So it's a hardcore trash punk and connects them all. Like it's an epic, yeah. it's an epic movie, but it's only 90 minutes long. Um, and in that way, you're able to look at the characters as what they represent about America, as opposed to actually worrying about Johnny's marriage or whatever. You're actually, you're seeing him as no, this is about sort of dissatisfaction and this is um you know and this is sort of about the darkness that came with world war Two, and this is about you know the beats the beat you know poets and you see characters that you know like basically jack kerouac and bob dylan <laughs> <laughs> like are rolled into one character and he happens to be like the son of cole porter like it's you know like like this is not a movie about the characters it's a movie about america um mm-hmm. and way Bakshi paces it makes that very clear um uh which is which is something i really like about it um i can't imagine this ever being a live action movie without being like two and a half hours and spending like way more time they need to on everyone's marriage and the dissatisfaction with their kids whereas all Bakshi needs is a single scene where and i i'm uh, one of the downsides about uh, all these these characters is i don't know their names um because uh he keeps changing the main character so often, but all he, I'll just say the Jack Kerouac, Bob Dylan, and then all we need to see is one scene of him coming home and yelling at his kids about watching TV um, after seeing Allen Ginsberg's Howl being performed. And that's all you need to know about yeah. his, his marriage and his relationship with his kids. You don't need to see it slowly falling apart. You don't need to like it, he just Bakshi just finds like one scene, one moment. Um, and that that gives you everything, um, which is. Really, you know, which is good storytelling, despite the fact that this is not a you know traditional storytelling. Yeah, uh, I, I like I, I like the nonlinear feel of it. It's almost like um, I, I gotta imagine that Richard Linkletter must be a big fan of this movie, not just because of the waking life sort of rotoscoping approach he decided to take. Uh, it, it has like a slacker kind of quality to it, where it's you know follows different people and. You know, in different ways, as but it makes music kind of, uh, you know, at at not necessarily at the forefront, but it's there to allow you to sort of acknowledge how fast and inevitable change happens throughout American history, and we witness a lot of it very quickly, and you sort of learn to come to terms with how, you know, these events we sort of go through, whether they be yeah. tragic or not, are temporary. It's so true, and it's and it's like and it just gives you the feeling of oh, this won't stop. There's no end point. There's oh, no right, 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 right. I like know. in a, I mean, I think I think the ending of this movie is kind of hilarious and anticlimactic in ways that Ralph Bakshi wasn't intending. That's the only thing I, that kind of bummed me out. I have to which admit, is, they the, couldn't get the they yeah. couldn't get the money to Freebird. Yeah. So uh, they so the big climax of American pop music is Night Moves, but the the way the film is led, it's just it's all about how it does keep changing and it will keep changing and it changes after that movie and it starts out within a seedy place and that's probably a while you know the all of the uh the you know the the uh tin pan alley and and uh all of the strippers and everything that's probably uh you know a scandalous change from what came before and there's probably going to be more scandalous changes that come after um 
And it's more about that than about saying, oh, this is the history of how ragtime became rock and roll, and mm-hmm. now that's the end. You know? Yeah, um, and that's movie- what I was thinking we were going to be in for because you see the title, American Pop, and you see the cover, and you think of it's going to be like, oh, this is a rags to riches kind of a story, and he becomes like a big pop star. And I like that it didn't. Ha- I like that it sort of subverted my expectations. And again, that's what that's what Bakshi does so well. Troy, I hear you frantically typing there. Are you? Are He's you- writing all this down. We're blowing his mind. I know exactly. Are you doing okay? I, I want to hear. How do you hear- know all the characters? I mean, zombie, zombie. You have the whole big scary. It's the big scary Jew nightmare scene that the Cossacks are coming to get you and run you out. I mean, they establish him for. I mean, from the beginning, he gets shot in the neck for a. I don't remember if it was PG or P. Well, it had to been PG if it wasn't R in 1981. It was, it was a, rated R, yeah. It was R? Okay. Yeah. I can't remember or not. Yeah, weren't there tits I, in it? Yeah, there, I, there was pasties, but there was also drug use and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, heroin overdoses. I mean, there's some brutal death in this movie. I mean, you're talking about how they're signifying change in music, but they also had people getting taken out quite brutally. You had Janis Joplin stand in. You had, uh, what's his name, Big Pete, the little hippie, Big McCarrack guy. I mean, his dad gets blown away. I mean, that was probably the best scene in the movie for me is where he's at the piano playing Lily Marlene. I mean, the pacing Mm. of that, that scene by itself is one of the best things Bakshi's ever done. Yeah. There's a lot of moments like that where I'm just like, oh, this is like this on its own is one of the best things Bakshi's ever done. Yeah, Uh, when Benny plays the piano in that nightclub and. Zalmi says, "If you won't live my dreams, then live my life." <sighs> All that, that, yeah, that's one of my favorite moments in the movie, for sure. There's, a, there's just, I, I, there, there, throughout the movie, I'm just kind of like, um, pretty much in awe. Because I, I'm again, like, I was hoping for a big sort of climactic, uh, you know, spectacular showcase. But you know, I think it's cool that. You kind of get a nice little um, montage, not a musical montage, if you will. A uh, what do you call it? A medley. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. That's re- I really like that because uh, you know, even in something like Moulin Rouge, I'm kind of a sucker when you throw a bunch of cool pop songs together in the same key and make it work sort of effortlessly. I like it when it's done right. I'm just still still kind of shocked that's the choice of like here is my amazing song oh, and it's see. night moves well i you know <laughs> i actually i like i think night moves is a good song my i think the problem is that he's such a punk and that it's yeah all punk. that's well that's what i mean i don't i don't just like the, the antithesis of punk is night moves night moves very nostalgic <laughs> and very americana and very it just doesn't even the fit end. the look of the character for him to play it doesn't night fit moves. His, it definitely doesn't fit his voice right that, that first shot where he moves his head up and you hear him singing at the same time though that build-up, incredible, when he just kicks over that bench and then yeah. starts snapping his finger. That's one of my favorite thing. Like, that's one of my favorite moments in everything, right? Uh, you know, right before it turns into night moves. It's, like, the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the way he frames it. I love, um, I love that uh, intercutting World War II with – I can't remember the name of the uh, jazz big band song, but it's in everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. With the, with the dancers and the, and, the, and the topless dancer and then the, the cannons firing and people getting killed. And, like, that's, that's an incredible moment. The, uh, the part where he takes acid for the first time. Oh. Um, and you just see, like, 
live action uh, backgrounds of all these mm-hmm. of crowds like running around the camera, and it's a fisheye lens rotoscoping. That's by the way, fisheye cool. lens rotoscoping is amazing because unlike regular fisheye lens, you don't exactly know what's going on at first. Like it takes your brain a second to process that it's a fisheye lens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's incredible uh, on its own. The Jimi Hendrix thing is great. Yeah, the, when, he, when he takes cocaine and in the club, and that I like the sort of black light kind of hallucinatory look and feel of that sequence. Tor- more oh, the, later the, towards the end, I think that is the the the, the, the punk uh, sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, it's more the punk sequence. I don't with know all the slam dancing and stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's what I mean. And Ralph and Ralph and one of the things that's great about that sequence is, and something that Ralph Bakshi is now uh, ever since he sort of stopped doing animation, he's been a painter. Um, and I went on his site mm. and I looked at his and this I don't I you know I I'm almost positive he didn't paint all of the backgrounds in this movie but they're all of his style especially the the sort of the razor blades with the and then the nose and the tongue with the you know the uh, safety uh, pin yeah. through it all that like that sort of abstract background during the the punk dancing like those really beautiful paintings um, and that at the I think the climax of that of the punk sequences. These uh, these paintings of crowds uh, where you see all these people with sunglasses and they're all very stylized and weird and like those are just like the, I love those paintings so much like his sensibility as far as uh, the way he paints is exactly my kind of thing and um, I could use some decorations for my new bedroom I should see if there's anything affordable that oh yeah no I'm sure it's super affordable Jim <laughs> <laughs> yeah I want to get some Bakshi paintings that'd be awesome. Maybe- yeah, maybe you should look up if he has an Etsy. Uh, Come buy my show, motherfucker. Right. Yeah. Fucking crocheted some fucking mouse tits. Um, uh, but uh, no, like I love all the backgrounds in this movie are beautiful. And unlike, um, you know, Heavy Traffic uh, or Coonskin, which have very interesting backgrounds, they also feel like one with the movie. Um, I think they I think like it it hits it just right um, where they're just stylized enough to make you sort of view this all as more of a parable and more of a stagey kind of a thing. But Mm -hmm. they're also functional where it's not it doesn't break your uh, it doesn't break your sense of reality to see the characters moving around in them. Um, Like I love this. I really love this movie even more so than the last time I saw it when I sort of this time I I think last time I saw it, I was trying to get invested in all of the characters' stories and like, just nah. being frustrated with how short and let it wash uh, over you. Right, as an as an more of an as an experience, and that's yeah. why I say it's more about the history of counterculture than it is about American pop. Because mm-hmm. you know, it, there's that part where it just goes away, and it's Jack Kerouac, and that's because there's like that was counterculture. Like, there's no real countercultural music uh, in the '50s and uh, in the four. You know, it's about. It's, he likes the dangerous stuff. He likes the you know the ragtime, and then he likes the jazz, and then he likes uh, you know the speakeasies, and he likes uh, punk rock, and he likes you know he likes the psychedelic um, music, and he likes the sort of protest feelings of folk music, and like. But all then, of the music but then that montage towards the end, that sort of medley, yeah. has some songs in there that are kind of not that. Right, those are <laughs> classic, and I almost I almost feel like that's a kind of uh, I wish I feel like that's kind of a bad choice because it doesn't to me fit like what the movie is um because yeah. it, it, this isn't a movie about the beatles and this isn't a movie about elvis and this isn't you know this is a movie 
uh, about Dylan, and this is a movie about Jefferson Airplane. And um, so the fact that even though I like the way that I think that was more posterizing, but it was obviously supposed to be stylized, it wasn't supposed to be reality. Um, and the kind of the crazy light effects, the uh, sort of trippy um, effects at the end, where he's you know playing devil in the blue dress and stuff. Yeah, and and the and the uh, per, the actual performances of those songs are a little more punky, a little more attitude. But yeah, I don't, I, I wasn't necessarily a fan of that. I get the idea that maybe he's trying to wrap it all up, um, but since it starts before early rock and roll and it ends after, it doesn't feel like it's wrapping it up the way. It, it would if it was a story. You know, it's not about the history of rock and roll. It's about, you know, because there's so much time that's about jazz music. And so I'm not as big fan of that. But um, maybe it would have, it might have been interesting if it had been a mini series, you know, and sort of drawn out some I, of the I eras. I think it has to work as one thing because as a mini series, like, I mean, I guess if it was a mini series where, uh, where one was just about uh, vaudeville and that was it. And then it ends with the character dying or it ends with. No, because that guy doesn't. That guy doesn't die. That guy gives birth. It ends with him uh, having the kid who plays the piano, mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I guess that would work. But I like I like it as one moment. Uh, I like the momentum of it being one experience. And I think if you cut it up, that would be unfortunate. Yeah, um, you know what I mean. Like it, you would miss that. You would miss the thrust of it all. You would miss the 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 turmoil of it changing so quickly. Um, whereas I don't need to know more about these characters. You know, I don't. There's not like, oh, I just wish he didn't spend so little time on – like he spends enough time with everyone. Um, the, only, the only real character I'd say that could use more fleshing out would be uh, the uh, – again, don't know the names. Punk rock guy at the end, the blonde punk rock guy who loves mm-hmm. – like, Yeah. Like he, he's just an – he's just like a – he's just like a dick. Like that's his <laughs> – like that's all it is. He doesn't have any kind of tragic – well, you know, he does have a tragic. I, that's that's a mistake yeah. uh, saying that. But it's but you don't see how that really plays out in his life because he just completely hardens. Um, no, I guess that I know I take it back because that is that that is actually absolutely a reaction to being abandoned is just hardening up and saying fuck it to everything. Um, uh, I guess my main problem with him is that uh, the climax of the film is him saying, I can't take it anymore where we haven't where we've just been seeing him grooving around and selling drugs and having a grand old time. So it's kind of weird to see him be like, Oh, I can't take this. Cause he's just, he's just <laughs> it's like, not earned. yeah. 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 But, uh, I mean, it's not, I'm yeah, And I'm not going to say American pops perfect movie. Again, there are budgetary things where whenever you see a crowd shot, there's only like one or two people who are animated, um, early on in the, uh, sort of the, the club where he's handing out the flyer, the kids handing out the flyers. Mm-hmm. It's especially noticeable because, the way they're, you know, you can tell they're not part of the background. They're just not really animated. There's actually, like, I've never seen this in a released feature film, um, but there's actually frames where uh, Little Pete's uh, jacket is not colored in. There's like, a, and you can tell it's just a single frame. It's not even like a stylized choice. Hmm. It's just one moment uh, during the punk rock sequence where his jacket suddenly becomes white for. Uh, a twenty fourth of a second, and that's because just they didn't have time to finish that frame of animation. Um, well, they just figure out it's a flub that no one will notice, right? And then you know, and it's not; it doesn't hurt the film significantly. Right. I'm just saying, like, uh, like a lot of Baxi movies, you, one kind of wonders if he got the songs that he really wanted, and if he 
had the time to make it as beautiful as it could be as far as the animation goes um, and as far as like some of those crowd scenes uh, the US I think the USO crowd scenes another one what would it have looked like um, but I think this one definitely feels more complete than say a lot of stuff in Coonskin or or, um, or Lord, certainly Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. so this is definitely like his most complete movie as far as <laughs> as far as actually, you know, the literal being made complete and as far as having a singular vision. Um, yeah, well, the integration of uh, of just and especially using music as a character within the, the story. And I think that's a really amazing feat to pull off for for American pop. Whereas in Hey, Good Looking, I, th- I think, again, it's one of those cases like you mentioned when he wanted Led Zeppelin for Lord of the Rings. I think. Uh, I, I, w- I want to say one of the guys from the New York Dolls was supposed to be involved with Hey Good Looking at some point to contribute some much better music than uh, was actually given, because that's the thing about Hey Good Looking. It's kind of uh, you know it takes it's it's supposed to be like his American graffiti in a way, and you know he, he's celebrating his his youth in this sort of like 1950s kind of Fantasia environment, but. Uh, he wanted to sort of populate it in a musical kind of backdrop, but the music itself is pretty bad. Uh, it's it's like a bunch of subpar new wave style artists kind of contributing like 50s style music and doing it really poorly, unfortunately. But I, again, it's... I think it's it, Hey Good Looking is kind of on par with a lot of... I, 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 didn't, I didn't get to heavy traffic, unfortunately, but I think I think they're probably... They would make a great double bill. They're sort of more autobiographical. It's just a kind of a coming-of-age Brooklyn story. It's almost like his American Graffiti or Mean Streets, you know? It's I, just, didn't, I, didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to watch this, but I did watch Heavy Traffic, which also felt autobiographical. Did you get a chance to see Heavy Traffic, Jim? Not that one, no. But Hey, Good Looking, it's, it's, it's good. I, 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 they, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say it's great because it has some major flaws, mostly music-related. But I think again, it's it's very simple. It's just two guys hanging out, looking for girls, starting trouble, and it's your fifties Brooklynite kind of storyline, and a lot of random, crazy, perverse things happen. What a shock, right? <laughs> but it starts off with like a talking trash can, talking to some garbage about what it's like living in Brooklyn and stuff, and he he seems to celebrate his roots and the environment that he grew up in, but he's real he's not afraid to point out sort of the seedy underbelly and the urban decay either. And he loves to focus on the stereotypes that have been cemented in his mind quite often in his movies. But there's a lot of crazy, weird, random, uh, gang violence because he's focusing yeah, on the lower class. Get, he just puts violence in everything. Like <laughs> he can't help himself. Really- are really needless like sometimes they're purposefully violent uh you know like like action scenes and you know in wizards or something but then sometimes they're just like why the fuck is just everyone getting their heads blown off in all of his movies violence and boobs <laughs> yeah there's plenty of boobs it's, again in hey good looking troy, troy I, I assume that you've seen both these films is yeah. is hey good looking like heavy traffic hey good looking is like heavy traffic if you took Pretty much almost call it heavy traffic redux. Like, you have yeah. a chance to say, you know what, I'm going to drop all the metaphors and all the bullshit, and I'm going to try to tell a better version of this older movie. That's about the best way I can phrase it. It's, pretty much, it's almost like I'm saying, you know what, I can say the same thing, but I can do it better now since I'm older and I got more pull. Mm-hmm. 
But the soundtrack um, again is really kind of subpar. It's it, there's just I don't know. Again, it seems just like '80s clashing with the '50s, and I, it doesn't seem very pure enough. Where they should have figured out a way to obviously probably getting the music rights for some of the classic oldies maybe not a, wasn't possible within the budget, but. Uh, I just think, again, it was one of those cases where Bakshi had a certain vision and it was compromised by either inaccessibility or uh, I don't know if there was studio involvement with this particular... Yeah, see, I don't buy the, hey, good looking, I just think he fucked up. Because, mm. I mean, that period right there, 78 to 82, that's the highest that dude's ever flown in his life, especially going in Fire and Ice. I mean, let's look. Uh, he had United Artists pretty much giving a holiday release to Lord of the Rings 78, and that was his biggest movie to date. Then he took that when the American Pop got good money for an animated flick in the early 80s. Because you got to remember, at that time, Animation in America was just in the shitter. I mean, Disney was just striking out. Don Bluth was going back to MGM saying, you know what, hey, I can offer up something better. I mean, pretty much at that point, Animation... The only comparison I have to say to this, it's like with sci-fi was between 1968 with Planet of the Apes and 77 with Star Wars. It was good if you need to make some money in the off-season, but it wasn't really something that the studios gave a shit about. And that's where Bakshi could fly, because if he didn't have someone standing over him and saying, you know, you have to do this, have to do this, have to do this, then no one's really going to stop and say, oh, you're making an autobiographical movie about gang violence and uh, booze and sexing up in the late 50s in New York. Yeah. I mean, well, he wanted yeah. to sort of de-romanticize that era, too, and kind of embrace the counterculture once again and have, you know, like just a gang rivalry and just sort of, you know, he just really wanted to uh, capture that era and embrace like what he remembers in a more exaggerated way, of course, but still, that the the depiction of that time is no kind of happy days version of it. You know, it's more along yeah. the lines of your last exit to Brooklyn or, or or Mean Streets or something like that. And I think that's really awesome that you get sort of an animated version of that from from Bakshi. Uh, so it's 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 definitely a, a, another good entry into his filmography for sure. And plus, you didn't have someone stopping you going, hey, 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 pal, you, you at home watching, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> Life is like pinball. Do you get it? Life what a is shock. Like pinball. Yeah. That is, yeah. Stuff. We're going to do stuff for 10 minutes, but we're going to come back to this point. So are you, are you okay? Because in 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you, life is not like pinball. You got it? <laughs> Good. Movie over. Yep. Yeah. That, that is, that's definitely the worst. Like, I did, yeah, that's a horrible metaphor in heavy traffic. Um, Fritz the Cat. I like because um, Fritz the Cat is it's it feels more it doesn't I mean unfortunately you know it doesn't feel as much boxy <laughs> uh, like it definitely has his raging id as far as all the sex and the violence and stuff but um, he's not really experimental at all in Fritz the Cat like yeah. to him the the experiment was can I put sex in a cartoon and that was the ground he broke but as far as uh, like formal you know changes in animation as far as experimenting with different forms and styles and stuff there's not really a lot of it um also it, it guys it fucking loses its way uh, i love the the first sort of story where he's like convincing all the hippie like that to me like that i i believe the first like third or half of um the first third or half 
of Fritz the Cat is just um, like is all uh, Robert Crumb based off Robert Crumb stories, and that's and then after that's where he goes away. And I love he gets very political. I don't think Robert Crumb liked that. Robert he he didn't like what the politics were. Robert Crumb right. got political too, but um, uh, he didn't he didn't like that he was sort of dissing counterculture as much as as much dismissing it as much as he was dismissing sort of square culture mm-hmm. okay yeah but um no i like it it's it's kind of it's kind of fun and i really love the first moment where he's picking up the hippie girls by pretending <laughs> to be like like a poet yeah um, i like that and too. that and that sequence where he uh he's like fuck college man fuck college just burn all your books i'm gonna be free man i gotta be a writer i'm gonna rewrite man and then that moment where he just sees the pile of burning books like that is a perfect uh, short cartoon. Um, <laughs> and Inabakshi does that a lot. Uh, I mean, I don't think he's a natural born storyteller, which is, I mean, he sort of picked it up, but his early films are all just like episodic. Like, all right, this happened. Now what? Okay, this will now happen. But there's no real sense of cause and effect or arcs or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Fritz the Cat's all right to me. Uh, yeah, it was fine. I enjoyed it. I mean, unfortunately, it was one of those... Uh, experiences where it kept uh my netflix instant was freezing a lot so i didn't get the full streamlined experience of watching it back to back i kept getting interrupted but <laughs> from from what i remember and what i saw it was uh i was fairly entertained by it there were certainly some lulls here and there uh right but it's 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 silly and it's and it's fun and it's you know i just uh i certainly Warmed up on it? even more to to backsheet the further along I went in in terms of just like if we went chronologically. Yeah, is there, uh, Troy? Is there another uh, Bakshi movie you might want to discuss before we wrap up the show? I was just about to bring up Coonskin. Yeah, going Coonskin for another two hours. Hey, yeah, hey, I was gonna. I was about to say I wouldn't mind doing a Ralph Bakshi part two late somewhere down the road because uh, you really like. That's a good like, there's point. A, there's a whole other podcast where you could talk about Ralph Bakshi's uh, relationship with black people and <laughs> and how like fucking weird it is where it's not like it's 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 simultaneously like in awe and condescending and it's <laughs> like and, and he has a little more you know he has a little more claim to talk about black culture than most white people mm-hmm. um having actually been kicked out of a segregated school or being kicked out of a mm. black school and growing up black neighborhood stuff but like the, yeah but then you get to like really questionable territory uh where he just seems to be like in awe of how cool and hip and badass they are but like they're not people to him and they're it's kind of condescending at times like i don't yeah coonskin is a fucking barrel of uh worms it not is just a can. it's not I, just a can, I, barrel i kind of loved it um it's crazy. You're you're right though. Maybe we should do like another follow up episode on Coonskin and Cool World. <laughs> cool. I don't know how long I could talk about Cool World, but uh, I know it's. Uh, I know it's. I, I know it's terrible. But even though like, I haven't watched wanted, it, though. If you, if, like it does seem like if you're going to pick one movie where it's like Ralph Bakshi's doing one for them, so you might think to pick Cool World. But uh, as I sort of stated on my Facebook wall after watching it, like. Cool World is a movie about how sexy cartoons are and how annoying it is that you can't fuck them. Like, that's, <laughs> and it was a major studio movie that Ralph Bakshi got a studio. Like, he got them to fund a movie about how much he loves, like how much he would love to fuck a cartoon. Like, that's the main thrust of the movie that drives the plot. Is just like, ah, uh, it 
you can't fuck cartoons because they're drawn. But oh, if you could, that'd be great. So like again, and it's his despite the fact that it's PG thirteen and it's sort of watered down as far as his raging id goes. Like it is just all about how he is aroused by animation, hmm. um, which is kind of great. And I gotta say, uh, when Scatman Crothers starts laughing at the end of this movie, it's the hardest I've laughed at a character laughing you, since you, mi- you're, you're since moving m- back Coonskin, huh? You, you're moving back to Coonskin, yeah. Well, yeah, because <laughs> like was... I was talking about Cool World, and then you talking about Scatman Crothers. Well, Scatman would have been dead by Cool World. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But I was just thinking of that off the top of my head when Scatman Crothers starts laughing at the end of this movie. It's the hardest I've laughed at a character laughing since Mister Little Jeans after he sees Max Fisher's play at the end of Rushmore. Like seeing him laugh just because of like he's remembering all these memories and just having like this cathartic sort of like you know reminiscence i just i don't know there's something about scatman crothers i just love that guy i just love his presence in general and the opening credits alone to this movie just oh i don't know yeah. I, I just I, I even when this movie had like questionable moments where i was like really you're doing that um i was still with it throughout all of it i just i thought it was an amazing hodgepodge of different cool things well here's the thing about coonskin it's a legitimate breakdown of the Br'er Rabbit myth. Yes. And how, the, and how they played against what was the rise of Mario Puzo in the early to mid-70s, saying that, you know, this is what crime is. This is what inner city looks like. But at the same time, you got to realize it's an old Jewish man yelling at you about how he knows more about the blacks than you do, and you're sitting there, I don't know, I'm going from the wasp perspective, but it's like, huh. I know I shouldn't think this is weird, but I'm just... It's a warped mirror reflecting on a warped mirror reflecting back on what is a cartoonish version of society. Mm-hmm. A myth of a myth of a myth. It's a subversion of the uh, Song of the South, or... Like, yeah. just that the, the, the revolution sequence, like, you know, that when he climbs up on that cross and starts shooting pictures of Elvis, John Wayne, and Nixon, I just... Oh. That's that was just something I thought was. Do you a- think? Uh, do you think Spike Lee was it all inspired by Coonskin? Oh yeah, I think so. Especially for something like Bamboozled, right? No, well, yeah, you can make par- parallel. But um, no, I mean, I would love to make a if I was if I had the ability to sort of rip footage from DVDs and stuff, I would love to make a, a Ralph Bakshi mixtape to put on at parties. Oh where it's goodness! Like the, the, <laughs> the opening credits of Coonskin, and, and then the. Uh, you know the first sequence in Fritz the Cat, and then uh, the I love the opening of Fire and Ice, where the the evil wizard is attacking them with sheets of ice that are coming from the ground, and it just looks like the wizard is is having an orgasm the whole time. So it just, <laughs> it just cuts to his like ec- ecstatic face, and then just like ice, like just ejaculating from the ground. <laughs> like I love that, and then I you know uh, the um, you know the uh, the super weird uh, sex scene in Cool World, which is like just fucking bizarre um you know you can make a great ralph bakshi mixtape uh why doesn't the academy show that as a montage at the oscars come on guys yeah it's gonna be you know and when he when he does pass he he's gonna he's gonna be up there and he's not gonna be the most famous person in that in memoriam and it's gonna be a real shame i completely agree he won't get as much applause honestly this point i just hope they remember him Oh, they they must. They remember like camera. Like, like you remember people who invented cameras. Surely they're going to remember the like. Even if they just say, even if they just say first X-rated 
car- cartoon. Like that is like unfortunately that is his legacy, but yeah. like that is a legacy that people remember because yeah. yeah. it's he broke ground. So, but yeah, I love Ralph Bakshi. I uh, I think everyone should go check out his movies because even his like because I don't think any of his movies are. I think American Pop is maybe the only movie he made that's a great movie, but um, they're all worth seeing, and they're all they all contain things that you'll never see anywhere else, and you you've never seen before. And you want to talk about Ralph Bakshi's influence? Um, we talked earlier about you know he influenced Peter Jackson. Like Lord of the Rings is the way it is, partly because of Bakshi. I think there's I, I, I've been I've been told there was a seg- there's a section on the or a segment on the DVDs. That sort of um, sort of show all the influences Boxy had on the trilogy. Um, obviously, Ren and Stimpy. I was just going to uh, say that. John yeah. K. Yeah, John K. Big time. Which leads into which leads into Adult Swim, which is probably a huge thing. You know, um, Adult Swim is a huge thing now, and that sort of sensibility and that idea of smuggling that really subversive uh, kind of comedy and and just outrageousness. Into into animation and cartoons and stuff like that. Adult Swim is based on. You know, you're not gonna have C Lab 2021. I don't think because um, <laughs> C Lab 2021 <laughs> is basically something where instead of instead of drawing over uh, live action footage, it's just drawing over old animated footage. But it's still just repurposing it um, to be subversive and and weird and outrageous. And so you're not gonna have Adult Swim without Ralph Boxy. You're not gonna have uh, probably, I mean, if you want to talk about the biggest cultural like miles like footprint he left, um, I'm sure that the cat uh, did more for the furry community than any other one thing. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I was watching that with my girlfriend Carly, and she was just like, "Oh, is this how furries are made?" And it's like, I bet if, if someone did a detailed history of furries, and you you look, you could see a spike with uh with what Robert Crumb did. Uh, in general, and with what Ralph Bakshi did with Fritz the Cat, um, so yeah. he's super influential. He's super interesting to talk about. He's uh, super so. perversive, but he's yeah. a, he's a truly. And, and here's something I like about about Ralph Bakshi. He's a work. He's a genius in terms well, of like being uh, just an incredibly unique artist. On I, top I, of it I, all, um, I what I love about Ralph Bakshi is he's perverted, but he doesn't try to hide it. Right. Um, I've I've talked before. Like I I get so annoyed that like HBO, they'll be like, oh, we're above television. We're something else. This is better than movies. What we're doing, but they'll also just have to have like two sex scenes in every show they do, in every episode of every show they do, and they have to have tits, and they have to like it doesn't matter if it's Boardwalk Empire or what. There just has to be tits in you know every episode, and they're always trying to smuggle it in. They're like, oh no, we're really this is really highbrow stuff. Ralph Bakshi when he makes perverted, you know, he's just like oh. You, there's no question. I'm not trying to do anything else other than put big tits in a in a cartoon. No complaints. Um, I like that honesty um, from his stuff. I thought you were going to say I like that in general. <laughs> you know, can't complain I'm about a, that. Not a cartoon guy. <laughs> it's not, that's well, not I'm not I saying I, I find that that's arousing not I for my gratification, Jim. I don't no, know about I'm, you. No, 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 no. All right, I don't know about Jim. I don't know if the Sailor Moon has the boom animated babes that make him think the wrong no, thing. No, 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 no. You know what? But, you know, hey, hey, Patrick, how about yeah. you, how about letting me come over to your place and let me squeeze your tits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. oh, you got the clap. 
I just want to. I want to. Can we just turn this into the coonskin quoting podcast? We'll do a Ralph Boxy part two, and we'll definitely talk yeah. about skin. I think we might have to. Let's do our. But for in the meantime, we should just go ahead and throw our top three bo- Boxy movies if we can. Sure, uh, I can go first. Uh, my first, my number one is American Pop. Um, my number two, which we didn't really get to talk about, um, is uh, Fire and Ice. Oh well, maybe we'll make that one of our which other ones. I just I love the I love the art style of it, and I need to see I, it. even though I don't like fantasy, I I love the rotoscoping. the uh, The actual like art is more complete, and the animation is better than what's in Lord of the Rings, and it's also a little more perverted. Oh, cool! Um, it feels more like Ralph Bakshi. Like, like, and what's great is not just all the women just are like just have big tits and they're just tits are hanging out everywhere. Like, all the men are just like super like hot and attractive and muscular. Um, and it's just like, and again, like I said, it opens with a wizard coming ice. So it's just all about <laughs> it's just all about sex. Um, so in that way, it it's it sort of is a fantasy movie, but it, it doesn't feel like compromised from Bakshi. So I really I'll, like. Fire I'll, I'll add that to my queue. Yeah, I think it might be on Instagram. It was oh. at least earlier. Um, number three would probably be Heavy Traffic. All right, um, I'm going to go with uh, Coonskin. Number one, yeah, yeah. And number two, American Pop, and number three, Hey, Good Looking. All right, Troy. My turn? Okay, yeah, I gotta almost go Jim. Number one's Coonskin by a long shot. Number two is American Pop. And number three, I'm gonna be a little different here. His two years on New Adventures of Mighty Mouse. While it's oh. not a film, it just, it changed everything. I mean, it, it's what ruined his career and set up Paramount getting ready from over on Cool World. But it's where he finally realized that, hey, this is the late 80s. You can't be the director for yourself, whether it's animation, film, TV, whatever. It's where he realized that his place is truly over and that whatever he's going to be now, he's like Orson Welles' post uh, Touch of Evil. He's an auteur without really an audience because he can't get the audience because he doesn't have the venues. The venues are shut down to him because you can't be an artist like that anymore. Hmm. So well, this was a this, this was a Mighty Mouse cartoon that was made in the eighties. Yes, it's this, where this, is not the, this is not the one in the sixties that he worked on. No, this is the one in the eighties that CBS hired him. CBS in nineteen eighty seven <laughs> hired him, him <laughs> with a small crew to take over. Like it was nine thirty Saturday mornings. I mean, right after, right before Pee Wee's Playhouse, actually, because Pee Wee's Playhouse. Was oh, nice. I can remember this. So you had for two years, two full seasons. Mighty Mouse with John Kay, his first big work. You had I forgot who else. There's a bunch of people on there. I don't. It wasn't a. God, I'm sure there's an indie comic guy from Kitchen City that was working on it. But there's a ton of people, just hardcore indie underground comics guys, working on a beloved icon. I mean, at the time, Mighty Mouse was still well known. I mean, this sure. is less than ten years after Andy Kaufman and everything, so he's still popular conscious. And he's just going nuts, just mature stuff, going around, beating up people, brutalizing them. I mean, not just cartoon violence, just beating the shit out of people. And then the episode that made the family groups and everything go nuts where he's crushing up flowers in a field, lying around, snorting lines, and just being all happy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just... That's that's the moment moment where six-year-old Troy Anderson goes... 
I fucking love cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's right. I did hear about that. I thought that was I thought that was the original <laughs> Mighty Mouse run. I should um, check. I'm sure I'm sure New Adventure of the Mighty Mouse is also on YouTube. I should oh check yeah. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pick this up. This sounds awesome. See, there's so much more backsheet to cover that we're gonna have to come back to him maybe in a year, year and a half. I'd be very down. I'm totally down for that. Uh, I'm officially a fan of this guy. Yeah, I so, believe Matt Gamble was it. Matt, Matt Gamble recently, I think, posted on my wall. He said that Coonskin is like the greatest animated film ever made. So we might have to have Matt Gamble on. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. But I um, go that far. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great. Greatest animated film ever. Uh, Matt, it's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Matt <laughs> only speaks Matt, in hyperbole. Matt, yeah, Matt only speaks in hyperbole. Uh, he was he was the one on our De Palma episode that was bullying <laughs> everyone who liked De Palma. Really, I miss yeah. that one. Oh, it's that was, it's a treat. That's a that's a that's a fun episode. That was basically just people screaming at each other, as any any film discussion of Brian De Palma eventually turns into. Um, but uh, in the meantime, what's uh, happening next? Next, we're going to be covering Wong Kar Wai. Yay! Yeah, I'm with, uh, stoked for that one. Yeah, I'm very excited. We have uh, Damon Who or How or Hooks, possibly. It's hard to figure out what his name is. Who? Uh, yeah. Who? Andre. Yeah, Andre Delamorte himself uh, is going to be here to talk about uh, In the Mood for Love and uh, Chungking Express. And Oh, it's uh, so Wong funny Kar- that you did that, Patrick, because I was going to suggest towards the end of the show, if we know what the two movies that we're going to be talking about, we should announce that at the end of each episode for the next episode. Come on, slackers. Yeah, because that, should- that way people can, you know, watch them ahead of time and join in the fun. Absolutely. Well, I, that's where I went. That's where Very my good. Went too. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll squeeze your tits later, Jim. I'm excited. Uh, Can't wait. Uh, so, uh, yeah, in the meantime, check us out on... Uh, on Twitter uh, at DC Podcast, and send us an email at Directors Club Podcast at Gmail dot com. Website, of course, is Directors Club Podcast dot com. Um, uh, we're have in the show notes. We're going to have probably links to a lot of the stuff we talked about, considering how much of it is on YouTube. Um, definitely, we're going to have links to uh, Jerry uh, Barda's film. Um, so uh, yeah, check that out. Check out Gabe Powers. Excellent. Uh, you know, a horror movie uh, column that mm-hmm. I'm still in love with. Um, keep an eye out. We're going to be trying to do more stuff on the site. Um, you know, just posting interesting videos or news items and stuff. So uh, to all that, uh, Troy, where can people find you? Uh, AndersonVision.com. You can also find me over at Braindead Radio. I have the most lackluster podcast over there that I do once every, you know, four or five or six months whenever Ooh. I have time. Yeah, this was Rob Hughes over at Braindead Radio or formerly podcast.com. Either address gets you there. And uh, what else? Uh, most other time I'm just working or uh, helping out Gabe because Gabe Powers, as you mentioned, he's doing stuff for you guys. He is nice. the best. He is. he is one of the best movie writers online that no one's paying attention to. I mean, Sam, Sam Strange, who you've had on it before, he yeah. gets a lot of attention, but I would love to see the same focus we put on Gabe. Absolutely. I completely um, agree. Are you on Twitter, Troy? Uh, I am, but I only check it once uh, every couple months or when my automated feed doesn't send me contest winners. Hmm. All right. So uh, I'm at Instant Gym, by the way. I'm Instant Pat- Gym. Yeah. I'm at Patrick Rapole. 
Yes, you are. Cool. You can uh, send it to at AV Central, but that's so automated that I only get an email or a notification in case something's went wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, don't don't bother with Troy on Twitter. You got enough, you got enough places to reach Troy. Yeah, exactly. Twitter. Facebook. Yeah. Uh, just go, think- go to the bathroom mirror and uh, go Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, I, I've seen Troy's number on several bathroom stalls. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- he's not an inaccessible guy and we want to thank well, him. Call. Yeah. Yeah. We want to thank him for being on the show. Uh, thanks Troy. Yeah. It's no awesome. Problem. Troy. Thank you for being on. It was a good time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and until next time, uh, this is director's club podcast. It is, isn't it? Isn't it? That's so great. With the side off line. I, man, I set that sentence up wrong. Well, I hope uh, you no. come visit us at directors club podcast.com. Please yeah, do. It. Okay. Just making sure. Will. Thanks, yeah. Troy. All right, everybody. We'll see you in two weeks for Wong Kar Wai. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. I'm a minstrel man. I'm the cleaning man. I'm the pole man. I'm a shoeshine man. I'm a nigger man. Watch me dance. I got the devil in me. It's the man you see. Got the devil in me. It's the man you see. Walk on, niggas, walk on. Yeah, I'll squeeze your tits later, Jim. I'm excited. Um, Can't wait. Fuck you, I'm gonna make Mighty Mouse snort cocaine flowers. Okay, great. Don't. The wizard is is having an orgasm the whole time. I fucking love cartoons! Yeah. <laughs> oh man.